Alright, so we're doing a uh, uh, Sunday School series in Judges, and uh, this is part three, so you're jumping in the middle. But if you're jumping in the middle, this is a good time to jump, because we took the first two weeks to set things up and sh- introduce the book, right? So this is the first week that we're actually looking at Judges, right? That's, so that's how it goes. Um, and as I said before, right, that... Um, we're looking at the story of Israel coming into the promised land and there's a deeper narrative going on, right? So that the promised land is really a picture of well, that's, I mean, let me pick on somebody who was here last time. Um, <laughs> Theo, were you here last time? Um, yes, I was. Okay. <laughs> what, was what was the promised land a picture of? promised land is a picture of the new heavens and new earth. That's right, so New creation, or you could think of it as heaven, okay? New creation, and the wilderness is a picture of Theo again? Of, um... Aha. Picture of... Aha. This life? This life, good, the Christian life, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and then the conquest, right... So, they're wandering in the wilderness, and in order to enter the promised land, it's occupied, of course, by Canaanites, so they have to conquer the promised land, and then Sarah, because I heard laughter, oh, oh, no. what was the, what's the conquest I picture of? Joshua and Judges. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Judgment. Judgment. That's right, Judgment Day, right? Jesus' Judgment Day. Okay. So... What's going on is a dramatic um, representation of this larger narrative of, of our salvation, right? And the two books that occupy the conquest is the books of Joshua and Judges. And if you look in Joshua, for the most part, it goes really well, according to plan. Um, they conquer Jericho, then they conquer... Then, and then with Ai, there's a, there's a problem because of Achan's sin, but then they eventually conquer... Uh, I and they pretty much everywhere they go they they sweep up right they 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 expel dispossess the Canaanites but what happens is that remember the they're vastly vastly outnumbered and so uh, the conquest is gradual uh, it takes a great deal of time because first of all the land is so vast that the Israelites can't possibly occupy all of it. And so uh, the, the conquest was always supposed to be gradual. It was always supposed to be um, this sort of steady progression. And then what happens is Joshua dies, right? And uh, at the end of Joshua, he gives uh, the, the people a speech. And, and if you read Joshua, the second half of Joshua is a really boring section of the book because it's basically describing all the allotments. You know, this tribe gets this land, this tribe gets that land, this city goes to this people, but it's really, the allotment is a projection, because it hasn't actually happened. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but the, the Israelites are kind of, they haven't fully occupied the land. Each tribe is, is located in their right spot, but they have, like, half the conquest to go. Does that make sense? And so the allotments are really, like, what they're supposed to do. And we're going to read the, the end of Joshua, and... Uh, in this speech, I want you to see that Joshua repeatedly emphasizes the religious and moral dimensions of the conquest, right? Because, again, what's going on is 
it's judgment day, right? It's not because of the merits and righteousness of Israel, so to speak, but it's because of the wickedness of the Canaanites. Um, God is cleaning the, cleansing the land of idolatry because it's supposed to be this um, new heavens, new earth, right? A down payment or a miniaturized version of it. And so it's not simply a matter of military strength. And if you think about it, the conquest, the way it's carried out makes no sense at all because the tactics are completely retarded, right? In the sense that um, um, the, uh, 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 they march around Jericho, right? They, um, uh, 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 the, all the tactics don't make any military sense, right? Um, and so Israel's supposed to have courage and strength, right? They're supposed to have military virtues because they're vastly outnumbered. But more importantly, they're supposed to have obedience and faithfulness, which is the spiritual virtues. Okay, so let's read Joshua 23. Let me just read it for you. So Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you, right? So notice the emphasis, right, that um, Joshua is saying, don't forget God. Uh, you didn't win by military strength. So if you didn't begin with, with military prowess, you're not going to end with military prowess. Um, it's God who's fighting. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain. So there's a lot of Canaanite people still there. Along with, and, and this is as according to plan. Okay, so this is not, this is not a bad thing so far. Along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West. Just quick, uh, geography quiz. What would be the Great Sea in the West? Very good, right? They didn't call it the Mediterranean. Uh, it was just this vast ocean, right? So from the Jordan to all the way to the Great Sea in the West, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. So again, God promises, just as I was with you with Joshua, I will be with you now for the remainder of the conquest, and it will be me who's fighting. I will, I will drive them out. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Right? It's a promise from God. Verse 6, therefore be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now let me just pause right here. This is very strange. Imagine that uh, um, it's Normandy, the bat- right before the, 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 the evening before the Battle of Normandy. And the general stands before his troops, the Allied forces. And he says, we're about to go into battle. And it's very important that you've been reading your Bible and praying. And it's very important that you've kept sexually chaste and that um, you don't have any idols and that you don't lie or, or steal. And then I think the soldiers could say with, with, with um, fairness, that's irrelevant. <laughs> what matters is that we can shoot straight, right? What matters is that we have courage and we have military um, abilities, but that doesn't matter here in the conquest. What really matters is fidelity and obedience to God, right? He says, keep all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left, don't deviate in any way, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you. Um, and let me just pause right there. Remember that uh, the commandment was no covenants, no intermarriage, no tolerance, because the the promised land is supposed to be a um, a down payment on the new heavens and the new earth, right? And And so no idolatry is to be allowed. Therefore, no pagan worshippers are allowed to stay in the land. Okay, and so, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, 
right? So, so this is a heavy emphasis on the worship aspect, the religious aspect of life in the promised land. Um, but you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord your, for the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts, puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. And so this is again is a reminder that what is facing Israel is really, truly impossible odds. But God promises that one of you will put to flight a thousand. So what you think is impossible, what is militarily would be unadvisable, is absolutely achievable. Because it's not a military fight in a traditional sense. It is it is obedience and trust in God, right? I believe there's handouts right there. There you go. So verse 11. So Joshua continues. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Again, right? Imagine before the Battle of Normandy. Love the Lord, right? That's what's important. It's not military strength. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, right? If you in any way do not carry out the conquest as ordered, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and a thorn in your eyes until you perish from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. So, so, uh, uh, so three things, let me just, uh, highlight, and I've already said it, but let me highlight again. Number one, Joshua reminds Israel that God will fight for them. And the reason for this is because, um, the Canaanites are a formidable foe. First of all, they possess superior technology. I mentioned, uh, they had chariots, right? And, uh, chariots are basically the ancient equivalent of tanks. Um, cause you have this sort of fortified position, a mobile fortified position. The other thing is that you're going at high speed. You can run down foot soldiers. Israel didn't have any horses. Um, this is sort of a, the precursor to, to heavy cavalry. Uh, the, the reason why heavy cavalry was so effective in later warfare is that there was a stirrup. So you can hook your foot into the horse, and then you can lean into the weight of the horse, and then you can kill and ram your enemies. They didn't have stirrups back in the day. It took a long, long time. I think it was the Mongolians or the, the Chinese who invented it, and then swept the world. So... You would ride horses, but it wasn't very good for battle because <laughs> you could easily fall off. But a chair was incredibly formidable because you had this secure anchor and then you just have this long spear. You have bows and arrows and you can just decimate your enemies. Um, the, the Canaanites had fortified positions. And I said that um, um, all the way up to the modern era, the, the ratio was about three to four to one to take a fortified position. So Israel would need three times the pop- military strength of the Canaanites to accomplish this. They're vastly outnumbered. Um, and so in many ways, and this is important to emphasize, this was a suicide mission that God has sent, that Josh was sending them on. Military, tactically, it was impossible. But then, and, and, and you can kind of see that if you remember back in Numbers, when, um, who is it? Moses sends the spies to Canaan to check it out. The spies come back and say, well, God was telling the truth about the fertility, the lushness of the land. They bring back these all these wonderful uh, fruits and produce. But then they say, but the people there are giants. We are like grasshoppers before them. It is impossible, right? And um, what was wrong with that statement is not that they were exaggerating. What was wrong is that they didn't believe and trust God. 
But it's true. The Canaanites were, it, it was an impossible task. Um, and so it takes a deep faith in God to proceed. Second point, uh, again, keep what is written in the law of Moses, turning aside neither to the right nor to, nor to the left. So there's no emphasis on doing military training drills, no emphasis on uh, focusing on their fighting ability. But Joshua keeps saying over and over, love and obey God, don't neglect the law of God. And so the conquest was a spiritual test. And so uh, the test was, would Israel obey God and do what is difficult, or, w- or would they take the easy way out? And the easy way out in many ways is to compromise on these very strict re- requirements because they were to completely annihilate the Canaanites. And uh, last week, I remember you remember, we talked about the ethics behind that. Um, so I don't have, uh, I don't, I'm not, not going to repeat it, but if you want to listen to it again, you can. But they were supposed to annihilate, they were supposed to completely destroy the Canaanites. That's a very, very difficult task, right? Um, and it would have, and, and so it's much easier to take the land, but then make all kinds of deals or to tolerate the presence of the Canaanites. And so it's a test. Don't associate, don't mix, don't marry. And then finally, notice there's a haunting warning at the end that if you don't drive out and, and, and cast out the Canaanites, they'll become a snare and a trap and it'll cause you to fall into idolatry and then ultimately they will oppress you, right? Um, they will, they will, they will be a wet, they will be a thorn on your side. And that right there is the story of Judges. So what's going on is the conquest, the conquest goes well with Joshua. And then in Judges, it breaks down. And instead of entering the promised land, they never do it. They never complete it. And so what happens is, Judges begins the long saga, which eventually leads to exile. It begins with Judges. That's the story. That's the point. Um, And therefore, the whole point is that they never enter the promised land. And therefore, it requires another Israelite somebody else, another leader to do it for them, right? So that's the story. Um, all right, so next point. Um, Israel failed to conquer the promised land and they disobeyed God. And when we read the text, I want you to see that this was not a failure of military prowess, but this was a failure of obedience. And and if you read Judges, um, chapters one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, it goes really well. So everything starts out just like it was in Joshua. It begins with the conquest of Judah. Always Judah looks the best <laughs> of all the tribes um, for various reasons. Um, Judah is, is the most devout, right, uh, of all the tribes. So everything seems to be going well with Judah's conquest. But then in verse 19, things break down, including starting with Judah. And I've highlighted for you, we're going to go through it systematically. I highlighted each of the tribes. So it basically systematically goes through all the tribes, okay? So let's read verse, starting in verse 19. Can I have John read it for us? And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they have chariots of iron. Oh, keep going. Sorry, I, uh, I, I'm going to always assign you a paragraph each. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I usually do interrupt you. But yes. And Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Good. Okay. So, um, the account is really interesting because it seems like Judah's problem is entirely reasonable because he said it says right they couldn't do it because. 
the Canaanites had chariots of iron. So this is like, this is heavy chariots, um, and they have impossible odds. Uh, but we're supposed to read that sentence with like, you know, a raised eyebrow, right? Because we're supposed to remember the promise of Joshua is one of you will put a flight, will put to flight a thousand of the Canaanites. So this, so what is this then? Is this a legitimate excuse? No. It's a failure of will and determination, right? And we know that because of the juxtaposition to verse 20. In verse 20, we're told that Hebron was given to Caleb. Now, Caleb is in the tribe of Judah, so this is all part of the Judah, the, 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 the territories assigned to Judah. So Caleb and his family are able to expel the three sons of Anak. Um, um, these are not literally three sons, but this is like a whole clan, right? But they're called, it's just like the sons of Jacob. Do you guys, anyone remember who Anak was? This is like, we're going to really dig into the, dive into the weeds of Old Testament details. If you remember back in um, Numbers when the spies go out, right? They report especially that Anak, the sons of Anak, are giants, right? So they're monsters. I mean, apparently they're huge. They all look like, you know, um, they, they all look like uh, uh, um, weightlifters or something. And, and what does Caleb do? Caleb is able to expel them. So, so th- this is no excuse. So, so Judah fails, right? And then let's read verse 21. TJ, can you read that? But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived, or have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. There you go. Okay. Verse 21 states that, uh, it simply states, kind of in a flat, almost journalistic tone, that the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites. No reason or explanation is given. But then ominously, what does it say? It says that the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin, listen, to this day. There's another hand up. Um, To this day, what does that mean? To the time it was written. That's right. That means when when the book of Judges is written... They're still there. When was the book of Judges written? We're not exactly sure. Certainly after the end events of Judges. And the Judges is stretching about three, 400 years. So we're thinking maybe it was written in the time of King David, possibly in the time of King Solomon. It's even possible that the book of Judges was written even later than that, or that it was edited, or what's called redacted, even later than that, and that this is an editorial note, meaning they're still there. What does that mean? It means that, huh? Yeah, they didn't listen to. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the beginning of conquest with Joshua, they still haven't done it. Right? That's a very haunting, damning comment. And notice it says that the Jebusites lived with the people of Benjamin. And the expression lived with doesn't just mean, okay, well, the Jebusites are there, the Benjamites are over here, they don't really associate or mix, so you know, you stay over there, I'll stay over here. To live with means deep association, deep connection, right? They're living together in peaceful coexistence. Well, not peaceful, but coexistence. Yes, Carlos? How do you connect um, fidelity, you know, Israel or um, having fidelity and, and obedience to God with that of military uh, power, you know? Because because um, because to obey God is to carry out the conquest. So they're supposed to fight, 
And so is it a lack of will on their part? I mean, the, the text keeps saying they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it, right? And what it's really trying to tell you is they wouldn't do it. They refused to do it. They didn't summon the, the will and the determination. Does that make sense? So they would. Have, so you're saying they would need to be both ho- like holy and as well as... Uh... Mostly holy. Because if you look at all the tactics, like, for example, the way they took uh, Jericho, they didn't raise a sword. They just marched around the city seven times and blew trumpets. Yeah. Um, that's what it takes. If you look at the story of Gideon, Gideon amasses an army of tens of thousands, and God says, let me whittle it down to 300. Now you're ready to fight. So it has nothing to do with military strength. This is not, I mean, Napoleon is not going to read the book of Judges and say, let me see what I can learn here, right? This is a, this is a, um, this is a, 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 a profoundly religious and moral endeavor that they're doing. Okay. Uh, let me, let me go on. Um, verse 22. Oh, so let me just make a last comment. Um, so the command, utterly destroy the pagan peoples becomes, now they live with them. Right? And so that's supposed to be jarring to us. Verse 22, where are we? Scott, can I have you read it, the whole passage? Sure. Uh, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scattered out Bethel. Now the name of the city was Holy Goose. Um, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way to the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way to the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of Hittites and built the city and called its name Luz, and that is its name to this day. Okay, so uh, the story is how Bethel, which was formerly called the pagan city of Luz, right, Luz, uh, which is located roughly in the middle, right, middle of, of Palestine, and what? How, how did they take the city? Well, they work out a deal with a guy. Let us, give us, you know, secret entrance. Give us, you know, expose the weakness, vulnerability of the city, and then we'll spare you. What story does this remind you of? Rahab, very good. But the difference with Rahab is that when Rahab in in Jericho, she shelters the spies, why does she do it? She does it as an act of faith. In the God of Israel, right? Let me read to you Joshua 2, 20, 2, 11. She says, the Lord, and the word Lord there is all caps, meaning it's the covenant name of God. No one on the lips of, uh, there, it's never on the lips of anyone who isn't a believer, right? This personal covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. She says, the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. It's a remarkable statement of faith. So she's doing this out of fidelity, out of, out, of, out of her faith in the God of Israel. And notice the difference in our story. Is there a mention of this man's faith? Does this man say, the Lord, the Lord is God. He is God of heaven and earth. No, right. So instead, even though this man has no statement of faith, they make a deal with him, which is a direct violation of Joshua's orders. No, make no covenants, make no deals. And yet they make a deal, which is what? Which is understandable because they're trying to take the city and they don't want to suffer battle. Battle is very hard. So they say, let's take the easy way out. And so let's enlist this guy 
you know, we'll cut a deal with him and then it'll be easier to conquer, right? Um, so they spare the man and his family. And then this is very, very ironic. This is very poignant, tragic. What happens? So they renamed the city Luz, probably because it, it had some sort of pagan connotation. And they, they name it Bethel, right? Which means house of God. But then what happens? The man leaves. So unlike the story of Rahab, right? Because what does Rahab do? Rahab joins the people of God. She marries an, uh, an Israelite. And then so the man leaves and he goes to the, to the territory of the Hittites. The Hittites are one of the seven Canaanite peoples, which is, they're located up north. He founds another city and he calls it Luz, which is what? Which is telling, uh, which is telling us, the readers, they never got rid of the city. It just came up again, like a weed, right? They never, they never completely destroyed it. They took the way out. And then what does it say at the end of verse 26? It's still there. At the, at the time of the writing of the book of Judges, the city is still there. Meaning what? They never conquered Luz. Because it's still there. Um, let's go to verse 27. Uh, Tracy, can I have you read that? Is it Manasseh? Yes. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleen and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, where the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Yeah, so Manasseh does an awful, awful, awful job. There are many people that they are not able to conquer and expel. And their reason is, it says, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Which is really, if you think about it, is that the Canaanites, basically the Canaanites held onto the land and they clung to the land. Their will is, was stronger than Manasseh's obedience to God. And listen, you might say, okay, well, maybe Manasseh was outnumbered. Maybe Manasseh was just overwhelmed. They couldn't face these Canaanites, but then what happens in verse 28? When Israel grew strong, right, when they were military stronger, then they finally did it. They conquered the territory, they expelled, no, it says they put the Canaanites to forced labor, which means what? They enslaved the population. So they, they did exactly what we said last week they weren't supposed to do, which is that they turned the conquest into empire building. Because they used, uh, the, they turned it into personal profit. They enslaved the prophet. Yes? Is Joshua alive still? He's dead. So who, nobody's, like, nobody's in charge. He's like, there's a pattern here. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. Hello. That's right. There is a pattern. Um, so you'll see repeatedly throughout jo- uh, Judges, there was no king. So Joshua died what, before the Jericho? No, he, he conquers Jericho, he conquers I. He conquers a great many cities. He does about half the conquest, and then he's old, and then he dies. Yes? But isn't that the purpose of Judges, since there was no leader Joshua, that God was raising up these Judges? That's right. So, we'll look at that next week, but we're going to go through the Judges. So, these 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 ju- these leaders rise up. Um, and at first, it goes fairly well. The, the initial Judges are quite good, um, particularly Deborah. Um, she's quite uh, uh, 
nothing is said bad about Deborah. But then as you go through the to the latter judges, um, it gets worse and worse and worse. And so uh, the either Israel has no leaders or they have terrible leaders. Um, and you'll see, because when we get to Samson, is horrific. And then, um, at the end, of, so you would think, oh, I always thought Judges ends with Samson. Um, I don't know, I had this impression when I was a kid. It just ends with Samson. But it goes on for, I think, like six chapters. You guys have recently read through Judges, right? Uh, I am. No, I, I, uh, the kids, right? The kids were listening oh, to yes, Judges. yes, yes, the kids are. <laughs> if you listen to Judges, it is the most... Dark, the end of Judges, the last six, I forget, four chapters of Judges, is the darkest, strangest, most depressing chapters, arguably, in all of the Bible. Never been preached. I've never heard a sermon on this, on those, cha- on those chapters. We'll get to it. We'll spend a lot of time on it next week. So, I remember reading this on my own, yeah. thinking, oh, maybe that's why we're supposed to to not kill every, you know, like the, the order. The, mm-hmm. it, it's, I mean, it's a spiritual it, it, it's it's a test, spiritual test. Yeah. But as I was reading it at first, I would think, oh, maybe, you know, that's what, you know, we want to be loving. We want to be, mm-hmm. but, but, but in other words, but then if I go with that route, mm-hmm. that's what they're doing. But then yeah, they're failing God. So, yeah. but, but modern reader would be like, well, yeah, you know, we, we right. not try to, you know, it's 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 if you imagine a movie yeah. these days and, and, and say you, you, you try to revenge and you take everybody and even the child of the family. Yeah. So nobody is They were supposed to, to slaughter even the children, yeah. Right. So it's like you're cutting everything. It's, it's right. there's no mercy here. Right. And at first reading it I go, Oh, maybe that's showing you mercy. Right. It's a way of showing mercy. Right. This yeah, but but I think verse twenty eight puts a lie to that. Because they enslave the population. Um, you don't love people by enslaving them. That is a really, you know, arguably equal to slaughtering them. So it's completely out of selfish desires that they don't spare the people, that they spare the people. They spare them to use them, right? Well, yeah, but, you know, also getting a spy to the city, it's like, well, that's, that's, that's smart. That's try to have less, right? So they're using human, yeah, human, human savvy. Yeah. But, you know, the first, if, if it wasn't this, I would, Maybe still thinking, hey, you know, maybe they, they've just been showing mercy. Right, right, right. So, I mean, so, you know, this is called, um, the conquest in theological terms is called intrusion ethics. And what this means is that, um, it doesn't apply anywhere else in the Bible at all, ever. It only applies to the promised land, and it's an intrusion of the final judgment day. It's, 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 uh, wiping the land clean, clean of, idolatry. Let me go on. Um, verses 29 through verses 35, I'm going to skip just for the sake of time, but it's the same story over and over and over and over and over again. Let me just hi- let me just give you some of the highlights. <laughs> um, if you go all the way down to verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in, in dwelling in Mount Ares, in I. Ijalon and in Shalbim, Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became subject to forced labor. Right. So what began in verse 23, I mean, Joshua 23, 
which is that no man shall be able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Now becomes Israel could not drive the Canaanites out. They persisted in the land. And even when they had the upper hand, they enslaved the population. Right? Um, and so Israel's conviction and determination to obey God was weaker than the Canaanites' ability to cling to the land. So that's the story. That's the tragedy of Judges. And you might say, okay, well, um, the, the excuses, the reasons, the, um, the explanations in, in, ju- in Judges 1 perhaps seems modestly reasonable. Well, Judges 2, which we're going to read, it's interesting. It's God's assessment of Israel's conquest. And so this is, where, where are we? Um, John, can I have you read the whole of Judges 2? Um, now the angel of the Lord went up, to, went up from Gilgal to Bukim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices, and they called them, and they called the name of, the, of that place Bakum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Yeah, they named this. They they named the place. Uh, I'm not sure, Bakum or Bochum. They name it place of weeping, and it's a really interesting story because God plainly tells them through the angel of the Lord. What does he say? You have not obeyed my voice. He does not say, oh yes, I did send you out there a bit under-armed and, and under-equipped. The Canaanites were much uh, more fearsome than I thought they would be. He says, you have not obeyed me. And then he says, he says, what is this you have done? What does that, what story does that remind you of? What is this you have done? When God says, what is this you have done? Uh, yes, that's good. I'm thinking of another story. Yes. What does God say to Adam and Eve? What is this you have done? And what is that, what is that saying? Israel is in a new garden. Remember we said the promised land is like a garden-like land. So Israel is, is like another Adam, a corporate Adam. And just like the first Adam, they disobey God. They sin against God. And so the whole story Right, uh, Bolkim is supposed to say, just like Adam, Israel failed. And now what's going to happen? They're going to be expelled. And so, I think, uh, the other thing is the, the tragedy in verse 4 is that Israel responds by weeping. But the weeping doesn't translate into action. Right? There's a kind of weeping that you're really sorry, not that you've, that, that, not that you've sinned, but that you've been caught, or that things are going to go bad for you. Right? It's like a, oh, you know, it's it's often the way my kids cry. Um, it's, do, you, do you think if they did now kill everybody that they're supposed to kill? Yes. Would have been... Yes, I they could have repented. They could have said, Lord, we right. repent in dust and ashes. And then they then go and obey. But they, they did not. That's right. So it, it becomes a self-pitying sorrow full of excuses is the kind of sorrow that we see. And you will see when we, next week, when we go through, we're going to go through the whole book of, the. so we did one chapter today. We'll do all, I forget how many chapters there are in Judges, like 26 chapters next week. 
But you'll see that, uh, remember this, remember the weeping. Because we'll talk about it it's again. It's painful. It's like, no, don't do that again. No, don't do that again. You know, mm-hmm. that's what you keep responding. Yeah. So the proper, the proper response to judges is depression. <laughs> so lessons learned today. Okay. What do, what do we learn for today? No, I think this is a very relevant book. So first of all, remember I said that this is a picture of the Christian life, right? Um, and even the conquest uh, has relevance because um, we're called to wage war with sin and idols in our lives, right? Um, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God, right? Uh, we're supposed to battle evil and sin in our lives. And we, have to utterly, we are supposed to be utterly ruthless and utterly destroy these things. And we're not supposed to compromise in any way. If, and, and because notice what Jesus says. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Meaning, be absolutely ruthless. No quarter, no mercy, no, no tolerance for sin in your life. And you might say, this is impossible. The task before me is too overwhelming. The sin, the, 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 the temptations, my sinful habits is too strong for me. I cannot do it. And God says, only obey me. And I will be with you. And I will fight for you. Be courageous and obey. Listen to Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Right? Don't dampen it. Don't reduce it. Put to death. Be utterly ruthless. Second lesson. The strength to obey doesn't come from threats. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, that's the third one. The, the second lesson, um, are there things in our lives about which we say, I can't do it, but about which God would say to us, you really mean you won't do it? Um, say that again, I couldn't understand. Okay, let me say it again. Are there things in our lives about which we say, I can't do it? I can't fight the sin, I can't fight the temptation, about which God would say to us, you mean you really won't do it? Right? Are we just like Israel, full of excuses, full of self pity? Listen to what First Corinthians ten says. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he might that he stands take heed lest he fall. Listen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Which means what? We are constantly at war with sin and temptation, but God will never let us face the enemy outmatched, outgunned. God will always give us the strength. God will always give us the way. He'll always give us the path of escape, right? Lesson number three. The strength to obey doesn't come from threats or focusing on the law, but on the gospel. Notice, if you look at Joshua, uh, sorry, Judges chapter two, the angel of the Lord says, remember how I brought you up out of Egypt. Why does he say that? Why does he say at the beginning of the speech, remember I brought you out of Egypt? Because the rescue from Egypt is the gospel story in the Old Testament. So, the, the strength, the motivation, the power to obey doesn't come from threats. It doesn't come from law. It comes from gospel. This is why our church, we're self-consciously and intentionally, we always try to center everything on the gospel. This is why at the end of every sermon, I try to connect it back to the gospel for what, what Jesus has done for us. This is not some sort of like uh, sermon tech, but this is the pattern of scripture, okay? Um, finally, number four, 
Obedience is not optional to the Christian life. It is essential. I think this is very important because there's a way to... Because there is a fallacy in in, in Christian thinking, which is uh, cheap grace. God has forgiven us. You know, it's my job to sin. It's God's job to forgive. So, sin away, God will forgive. Judges tells us there's no cheap grace. You must obey. Because if you look at 1 Corinthians 10... If you look at Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, it all goes back to this story. And what does it say? It's a dire warning. If you do not obey, then God will not fight for you. He will abandon you. Right? This is the beginning of the apostasy. Let me make this clear. Right? This is apostasy, which is me, which means um, abandoning the Lord. And so Judges always says that grace... Uh, transforms your life. You have to obey because if you don't obey and you tolerate idolatry, you tolerate sins in your life, it will become a snare. It will become a trap. What is a trap and a snare? It's a hidden It's a hidden thing. No one walks into a snare thinking, oh yes, this is a snare. It's hidden. It's camouflaged. You have no idea what it is. And then you walk into it and then it's too late. And the whole point is to warn us that you'll fall away from Christ if you do not obey. And so... This is a matter of life and death. The sins in your life will destroy you. It will kill you. And so obey. Do everything you can. As Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. There is no effort, no, there is no expense, there is no um, time that is not well invested to root out sin in your life. Right? This is not to say that you can live a life completely free from sin. As John says, if, if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar. But you must live a life that is constantly moving towards um, obedience to Christ and a life that pleases him. Yes, Carlos. Uh, Peter also says in one of the, uh, I think in Second Peter, um, for um, uh, love covers the multitude of sins. <clears throat> yes, that's right. So we, 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 we have a mediator, we have an advocate who is just and merciful, who will forgive us when we come to him in true repentance? Absolutely. So there's there's always a tension and balance in Scripture, right? Which is that um, we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by grace, but it's not a grace to which nothing happens. It is always a grace that transforms your life. And if you do not have a transformed life, you show that grace is not operating in your life. Right? So there has to be evidence. There has to be fruit. She says you'll know the tree by its fruit. In fact, in fact, there's even more dire warning. If there is no fruit uh, in the tree, what does Jesus say? Cursed, curse that tree, and it withers and dies. So in Christian life, you're constantly balancing, right? And you, you, you try to constantly fight evil, mm-hmm. like the sin in, our, in ourselves. Yeah. And, and we fall short of often and we repent. But is there a point where we keep doing this and, and then we lose us this grace? Yeah. You used to, one point in time, belong to God? In a sense. So this can be very complicated. But all of the warnings, I mean, uh, Hebrews especially, constantly says, don't be, don't be complacent. Don't, um, don't be presumptuous to think, oh yes, I'm saved. Constantly be vigilant. Constantly be on guard. But then in other places, Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. So what's going on, right? And then you say by not works. You're not so, saved by works. Right. So it's it's supposed to be. Although um, you're saved by grace, okay, 
That's the foundation. That's the basis of your salvation. But you're also, in a sense, uh, saved by your confirmed life of obedience and righteousness at the end, right? But all of that is always grounded in the saving work of Jesus Christ. So there's a tension. It's a paradox. And I think uh, one way to resolve the paradox is, I think the, war- the dire warnings in Hebrews is a means by which we realize the heinousness of sin, the beauty of Jesus Christ, and so we cling to him. Um, the Christian life is, is not a life in which you can relax. It is constant vigilance. But when you, when you vigilantly hold on to Christ, you will surely be rescued in the end. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but it is very possible that you are a complacent believer, and I put believer in quotes, and you're in the church. Uh, Jesus says this all the time. There are sheeps and there are goats. And at the end of time, on Judgment Day, the goats are going to say, what do you mean I'm not saved? That's right. What are you talking about? We called your name, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoer. So there's going to be a great number of people. I wouldn't say great number, but there's going to be some people who are going to be surprised. I thought I was rescued, and they were only fooling themselves. And uh, 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 how can we avoid that fooling? Well, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, and then we need to examine our lives and see if there's fruit. Pastor Michael, so um, <clears throat> theoretical question. So, like the Israelites, if if they had like you know fully obeyed and like um, fully eliminated the um, people Kenyans, of the land, yeah. do you think that they would have been able to fully occupy the promised land? Because there's no like judgment on like their own sin, right? It seems like the judgment is on the people on the land. But how about like the sin, like within themselves? Yeah, I, I think uh, when you asked this like two weeks ago, right? Which is what would have happened if Israel had had actually yeah. done this? Mm-hmm. Um, it was an impossibility. It could, they could not have done it. And so, in a sense, the whole story is replaying the drama in the garden. And because, see, Adam had a true choice. Adam could have truly obeyed. But since the fall, there's uh, an inward deep corruption in us such that we, we cannot muster the obedience that is required. And so Israel could not help but to disobey. It's interesting, if you look, if you read the end of Deuteronomy, right? Moses is, is right here, perched on the outskirts of the Promised Land. He's about to enter the Promised Land. He's telling them warnings. He's saying, if you obey, there's blessings. If you, if you don't obey, there's curses. He's saying, obey, obey, obey. And then he says, I'm going to teach you a song. And I want you to memorize the song. And I want you to teach it to your grandchildren, to your great-grandchildren. I want you to sing it for the rest of your life. And do you know what the, what the song is? The song is about the disobedience of Israel, how Israel will fail, how Israel will be cast out, but God will call them back. It's a very strange song. Obey, obey, obey. Here's a song for you. And they're singing about their future failure. So all along, it was always understood Israel would not be able to do it. I saw a question. So, so, in, so your point number two, when we say we can't do it, that means we won't do it? Or how you were saying, like, even in the, in the verse where you were talking about You are struggling with the paradox that um, I'm not sure I quite understand myself. Um, so there's a tension absolutely in the story in which God says, I don't accept any of your excuses. 
but yet they never had the moral capability within them. The whole story is a 1,500-year drama to set up the true Adam, the second Adam, who will truly obey in the wilderness, who will truly obey in the Garden of Gethsemane, and who will lead his people into the promised land through the resurrection. It's always a setup for that. It's a tension. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're living in that tension. Um, that's always, every pastor will always say, oh, it's a paradox. And that's the, how you get it. Let me just say this. The Bible's full of paradox, right? And if you don't like paradox, you cannot be a Christian, truly. Um, if you try to resolve paradoxes, that's when you run into trouble. I think the Bible's full of paradoxes because it's true. Because it's beyond us. It's, it's from above. It's, it's divine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this class. Thank you for this lesson. Thank you for the dire example of Israel um, in, in the conquest and in Judges. Let us learn the lesson. Let us have a sober view of ourselves. And let us cling to the cross. Let us cling to Jesus, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you.